Flipping our Bibles to Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. If you're using that blue Bible, it's page 602. 602. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. This is a sampling, just a small sample of what we're going to see when we get to 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 12 in just a minute. And so you'll notice that this is actually a forecast or a prophecy of Christ's coming. You'll notice the Holy Spirit's involved. And you will also, and I'll show you where, you will notice how we are actually involved in this. So Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Those three verses are actually quoted in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, about Jesus' healing and preaching ministry. Those words right there are pointing to that moment in Matthew 12, verses 18 through 21. But then the Lord goes on. For thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. And right there, that section, Paul himself quotes in Acts 13 as what the apostolic ministry is all about. In his following Jesus, he quotes this verse to the Jews and why they need to repent and believe in the Messiah and about his ministry. It goes on. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And now let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. We're going to pick up where we've been. uh, We're just reading our way through 1 Peter. We're going to pick up at verse 10 through 12. For anyone visiting, we're doing a series all the way through 1 Peter and all the way through 2 Peter. Memory manners, and mandates for God's minority people. We've dealt with chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 the last two weeks, and now we pick up at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So all that I've read to you from the Old Testament and the New is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, 
we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Again, if you're visiting, the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide, and there is a quotation after the last point that I would be making reference to at the end. Now, some of you know my history, so I'm just going to use some cryptic language here. But I was once in a sect, S-E-C-T, in a sect that treated the Old Testament scriptures as little better than Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Good advice and not much more. Their notion was that Genesis through Malachi, and yes, even almost all of the gospel accounts, were part of the Old Testament before Jesus died, and none of that applied to us. Nothing from the Old Covenant or even the Gospels applied unless it was restated in some way in the New Covenant Scriptures. That was the point they made. But I want you to notice, and I think that a lot of Christians actually think this way, but Peter gives us a far better way to understand the Hebrew Scriptures, what we often call the Old Testament, in this passage. Now, why is Peter putting verses 10 through 12 here? It's because, it seems to me, that many of the Jewish leaders in all of the synagogues and all of those regions he had mentioned in verse 1 and in, um, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, many of the Jewish religious leaders would be telling the Christians, you cannot have our Hebrew scriptures because they belong to us Jews. And so they would have been effectively cutting off and cutting out the Hebrew scriptures from the Christians, doing the exact same from thing that we did and the sect that I was in from a different angle. But I want you to notice that Peter has better things in mind. Because our Lord Jesus Christ actually has better things in mind. And thus, Peter will describe a promised salvation spoken by probing prophets who gave us purposive predictions, and all of this becomes the presiding setup. There's all four points. There's the four points. And so promised salvation is the very first part of verse 10, and I hope that you have your Bibles open so you can follow along. It's the very first part of verse 10. After Peter has greeted his readers, showing what they are and how they became what they are, verses 1 and 2, and that they have been brought into a living hope and a lasting inheritance, verses 3 through 9. Peter now gives them assurances that what he said in verses 1 through 9 and what he is about to say, starting from verse 13 all the way to the end of 1 Peter, that what he has already said and what he's about to say is not some novel invention, newfangled fabrication, but has a long, long pedigree. But first, notice how he begins verse 10. The first three words concerning this salvation. Well, what salvation, Peter, are you talking about? The salvation God is guarding you for through faith, verse 5. The salvation that is the outcome of your faith, verse 9. He's referring to what he's already said, verse 5 and 9, concerning this salvation. So what is it that concerns this salvation? 
It's the fact that there is a long pedigree, an ancient biblical heritage that has pointed to this moment, to this salvation, that was written about this moment, that has longed for this moment. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Now, I'll have more to say towards the end of the sermon about who those prophets were. But for now, Peter is looking back at the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures in this comment. And what is it that these prophets proclaim beforehand? The grace that was to be whose? Yours. Isn't that huge? So what is Peter working at here? Well, first off, he is showing these elect exiles who have been made elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, verse 1 and 2, that they really were foreknown, they really were forecherished, they really were foreloved by God. So much so that they were talked about in the Hebrew Scriptures. Further, Peter is showing them that God causing them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was actually part of God's plan from long ages past. And thus, what Peter's what Peter has already written in verses 1 through 9 and what he will continue to develop in verse 13 all the way to the end of the chat of the book is not some novel invention or newfangled fabrication, but it was all God's promised salvation. Now that's important in confirming and assuring. Most heretical sects, S-E-C-T-S, I have to say, I have to spell it sometimes, right? Most heretical sects could care less about either history or the Hebrew Scriptures. As you know, I did my doctoral thesis in Gnosticism, and it was one of the things that stood out clearly is that the old Gnostics, all and even the new Gnostics, don't like the Old Testament, hardly ever quote the Old Testament, think that the God of the Old Testament is a bad, mean ombre, and they're so glad they have a new God of the New Testament who's sweet and cuddly and lovey and syrupy. So they don't like the Old Testament, they don't like history, or any of that. Most heretical groups are that way. Also, most newfangled, innovative, novel movements are all about the brand new, the totally unique. For example, here's the difference between, you hear, excuse me, in the, in the restoration language that my sect used to use, the restoration language, which went something like this. Well, you know, after the first century, the truth was lost, the gospel was lost, until our movement found it, reestablished it in the 19th century or the 20th century, or just put whatever date you want in there. That's hugely different from Reformation language. I tried to emphasize that during the five solas, Reformation language is all about the fact that truth has always been there, the gospel has always been there, all of the five solas were always there all along, 
just sometimes we just set them aside. We still remembered them, but we set them aside, put them in the family attic, packed them away, still talked about them, and the reformers just brought them back and put them on display. There was nothing new, nothing innovative, nothing amazingly, wow, this has never happened before. That's a huge difference from restoration language and reformation language. There's more I could say and have said especially if you were in the church history class I taught a few years back. Finally, dear friends, many newfangled innovative novel movements are all about new revelations, new insights, even new inventions. Well, I can't believe the church missed this for 2,000 years. Great God in heaven, thank you for giving me this new revelation of this truth in Scripture that nobody else got, and you all need to buy my book so you can get that truth too. But think about it, my friends. What are we part of? This is what Peter's driving at here. We are part of a long-promised salvation, and why is that important? He's writing to exiles who are going through grievous trials. Let me, let me use an illustration from Oklahoma prairie grass. You all know about Oklahoma prairie grass, right? How deep down do the roots go in the prairie grass? Anybody remember? Probably two feet, three feet down, Right? And so that prairie grass survives drought, survives prairie fires, sometimes even survives farmers to their consternation. It still survives because it's got deep roots that you cannot wipe out. Do you get what Peter's driving at? You're in the face of furious trials, he says, but you belong to that which has deep roots. It will never be wiped out. You're part of history, and you're part of the future, and it all goes together. This is not brand new. That's great news. It was meant to comfort them in the midst of the trials they were, they were going through then. It's a long-promised salvation, which leads Peter then to describe the probing prophets. It's the rest of verse 10 and then the first part of verse 11, verse 10 and 11 here. Now, I'm really grateful that that last part of verse 10 is here. Notice that the probing prophets prophesied of the grace that was to be yours, and so they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Peter is saying that the prophets often spoke truer words than they knew. They often spoke truer words than they knew, words that went far beyond their full grasp and comprehension. So they had to become probing prophets. They had to go back and say, what in the world was that all about? Let me go back and look at this and how this is, where this is leading us to. They did. You see it, for example, in Daniel and some of his visions, and you see it in Zechariah. They see these things, God is talking, God is laying this out, and then they stop at the end of a, of a vision, they'll say, God, I don't have a clue what I just saw. Could you send me a heavenly interpreter to help me a little bit? Right? So sometimes they didn't get it all the time, in the sense of what this meant and how this worked out. So it wasn't always clear to them. One reason why I'm glad this is here is because, I don't know about the rest of you, but there are plenty of times I read the Hebrew prophets and then stop and stumble around with baffled comprehension. And if you do as well, you will find yourself 
then in good company. Even the prophets themselves had to search and carefully inquire what they had just proclaimed and what this was about. But these probing prophets were not leaning on their own perceptions and their own prognostications created through fastings or peyote or whatever. It wasn't through any of those things. Notice what Peter says. They were led, they were informed by the Spirit of Christ in them. Very simply, my friends, the words and the writings of the probing prophets were the words and the writing of Christ by His Spirit. The words and the writings of the probing prophets were the words and the writing of Christ by His Spirit. Now, let me work at it this way a little bit. It's not that these probing prophets were dictating machines. I mean, I remember my mom. This is back in the day of shorthand. I'm, I'm dating myself here. All right? And she was a secretary, and she would be told, come in and... And I'm going to give you a letter, so you just need to sit down and write it out. So she would write with all these squirrely, squiggly lines, and she's dictating. She'd print it all out, interpret it, translate it, print it all out, hand it back to the boss, and say, this is what you said, right? Yes, it's what I said. And then she, she didn't put her brain into it, per se. She just simply dictated. They were not dictating machines, nor were they just simply and only recording their spiritual experiences. Well, I feel like this was what was going on. In some way, Peter is saying, in some way, their personalities were wrapped up in the Spirit's message and the Spirit was involved in working with and working through their personalities. That's why when you read Isaiah and then you go read Jeremiah, you can't miss it. There's two different personalities involved in this. But in the end, their words were the words of Christ. So let me give you some highfalutin theological language here. We talk about this with Jesus. We talk about the hypostatic union. What in the world is a hypostatic union? The eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. That's the hypostatic union. My friends, the hypostatic union, that applies to Scripture. Fully divine and fully human, but one book. It is fully human, the personality has come through, and fully divine. God has fully inspired it. This is His Word. So when you think about Scripture, it should draw you to Christ in the very same way, that hypostatic union. Fully divine and fully human. Another way to put this is that the words of the probing prophets are the words of the Prince of Peace. The words of the probing prophets are the words of the Prince of Peace. And the probing prophets spoke purposive predictions. And that's the rest of verse 11 and verse 12. Purposive, Purposive predictions. Notice the Spirit of Christ, through the probing prophets, predicted, verse 11, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, Peter addresses that the aim of their writings, of the probing prophet's writings, was, was with purpose, was filled with purpose, specifically to forecast what would befall the Messiah, the sufferings of Christ. But even more than just Christ alone by himself, but by union with the Messiah, also the sufferings of Messiah's minority people. There's a union between us and Christ so that 
Christ's sufferings and our sufferings go together. So when Peter is talking about they proclaim the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, Peter is also talking about you who belong to Jesus. That's why 1 Peter is talking about suffering on almost every other paragraph or every paragraph for five full chapters. So if the probing prophets forecast what would befall the Messiah, and by union with the Messiah, Messiah's minority people, which are sufferings. But further, Peter emphasizes that the probing prophets predicted the results that would arise from their suffering, from the suffering, the subsequent glories. And my friends, isn't that what we talked about last week in verses 3 through 9? The subsequent glories, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, having this, having this lively inheritance that is indestructible forever and ever, the subsequent glories. You get it? That's what Peter's talking about here as well. And he says the probing prophets were pointing this way. This is why the letter will begin to wrap up with these words in chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. And I want you to listen to the suffering glory paradigm here. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. In fact, Peter goes further. And he describes how the probing prophets were actually looking to us. That's verse 12. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. That they were helping their time. They were actually speaking to their age in many ways. But ultimately, they were not serving themselves but whom? Us. You. They were serving you. They, it was revealed to them that they were serving you. They knew about you. They were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, the very same Spirit who inspired them and spoke through them. The good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. And so... How are we to understand all that Peter has just said in verse 12? I think the writer of Hebrews puts it well at the end of Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews, as you know, is talking about faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and then he lays out all of these Old Testament believers, one right after the other, and then he, he brings it all to a conclusion in the last two verses of 11. Here's what he says, And all these, whom he has just named, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Wow! That's our story, and they're part of, and they're part of our story, and we're part of their story. It's amazing, it all flows together. That's really the point. Another way to say it is this, brothers and sisters, is that the Old Testament is God's word for God's people in every era. And so, these purposive predictions bring us then to this presiding setup. Now I'm going to come back to all three verses, verses 10 through 12, this presiding setup. 
We need to come back at these three verses in a way that will help us to grasp Peter's encouraging, heart-lifting point. First off, Peter is giving us a way, is giving us actually the way to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Hebrew Scriptures. However else you approach these Old Testament writings, you must come around in the end to Jesus, to our Lord's mission and purpose, which includes us. You must always find your way there because they're all talking about Jesus in the end. In fact, dear friends, this is what our Lord Jesus told his handpicked spokespersons to do. Now, last week, we looked at Luke 24. I'm going to invite you to go back to Luke 24. Just hold this place and go back to Luke 24. We talked about the two on the road to Emmaus and how hope had died, and here was hope himself raised from the dead, talking to them and all that came out of that. But I want you to notice what our Lord said to them, the two, and then I want you to notice what our Lord says to all the disciples. So we're in Luke 24, very quickly, down to verse 25 and 26. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Do you hear the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then drop down to verse 44 and 45. Here, after our Lord has shown himself to be physically alive, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair, even eating fish. Right? That's pretty physical, you know what I mean? Then he tells his disciples this, and I want you to listen to verse 44 where he tells them, and then in verse 45 when he opens their minds. Then Jesus said to them, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now just stop. Okay, that means, Jesus, you said these words to your disciples the whole three and a half years. You walked with them on those dusty roads up and down, up and down, up and down, up mountains, down mountains. Oh, this was one of your constant themes. That's what he's saying. I told you this not once. I told you this not twice. I told you this for the three and a half years. We were walking together through all of Galilee and Judea and so forth. Verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And so this brings us back then to recognize that when Peter talks here about the prophets in chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, He's referring to a larger group body of writings than you are likely to be thinking of. When you hear the prophets here, you're probably thinking of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and Joel and Jonah and all those, the twelve, right? But that's not who Peter's talking about. They're part of it, but he's got a bigger group in mind. In fact, when Peter's talking about the prophets, he is actually referring to and referencing Moses and Solomon and the Psalms, and much, much more. Well, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'd like to tell you. I know this because that's how Peter employs the Hebrew Scriptures in 1 Peter, verse chapters 1 through 5. He brings in 
multiple direct quotations from the old the Hebrew scriptures, or he makes multiple allusions to them. Let me give you some samples. He makes allusions to Genesis when in chapter 3 he talks about Abraham and Sarah, and then again when he talks about Noah, the eight, and the flood. And all of that is talking about the grace that was to be yours, and all of that was serving not their own, but you. He's taught, he, he quotes Exodus chapter 19, when in chapter, in 1 Peter 2, when he talks about us being a holy nation, a royal priesthood, etc. He's just drawing from chapter 19, verse 5. He's quoting and he's referring to Leviticus, when in verse 2 and down in verses 17 and 18, he talks about the sprinkling of the Lamb, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. And then when he quotes Leviticus, be holy, for I am holy. You know, this because of the way he brings in Deuteronomy. All this election language begins surfacing in the book of Deuteronomy. Because of the Psalms. He quotes the Psalms extensively in this letter. He quotes Proverbs. You know, love covers a multitude of sins, comes right out of Proverbs. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, comes right out of Proverbs. The prophets were prophesying of the grace that was to be yours. You hear it when you see the specific quotations, several of them, from Isaiah. I made a case the last two Sundays that he's got Jeremiah 29 he's alluding to in verses 1 through 9. Ezekiel, when he talks about Jesus being the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Daniel, when he talks about resisting the devil who is like a roaring lion seeking whom maybe he may devour. And Hosea. When in chapter 2, he says, you once were not a people, but now you're the people of God. You once didn't know mercy, and now you know the mercy of God. He's quoting right from Hosea. I could pile on more. All of the Old Testament is what Peter's referring to, was all proclaiming the grace that was to be yours. (coughs) Wow. And all of these are about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. These writers of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures were not serving themselves, really, in the end, but us. And the things that have now been announced to us through the good news. In the words, in the words of, a, of an early church pastor, a fellow I spent many, many, many nights reading over and over and over and over again for my doctoral thesis, St. Irenaeus, who was fighting the Gnostics. He wrote five books, and they piled them together and made it uh, five volumes of Against the Heretics. And in that book, Irenaeus said at the end of the second century, and this is your quotation you have in your sermons, the writings of Moses are the words of Christ. The writings of Moses are the words of Christ. If then this is the case regarding Moses, so also beyond doubt the words of the other prophets are his own words. That's the presiding setup Peter wants us to have because that's the presiding setup he learned from Jesus and is passing on to us. That's the presiding setup First Peter actually assumes as it writes as all these five chapters are written out. And that's how we're to approach the Hebrew Scriptures and why is that a big deal? This is not a lecture. This is not a seminary training class. Why is that a big deal? Because concerning this salvation, this salvation that you have entered into by grace alone that you don't deserve, 
is deep and ancient and goes on for millennia past because it was planned all along and you were part of the plan. In fact, this is talking about amazing grace. You, as God's minority people now, are the culmination of the plan. It gives you deep, deep roots to weather the social droughts out there and the windstorms out there blowing things apart. And when it's all done and said, guess what? We're part of this long, long, long heritage, God's world rescue operation. We won't get lost. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord our God, for how all of these Hebrew prophets prophesied of the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, which actually includes us, that they were prophesying and predicting the grace that was to be ours, that they were serving not themselves, but us. Why us? You know us. You know how fickle we are. You know how often we have mood swings and we do nasty things and mean things and say mean things. Why us? It's according to your great mercy. Thank you for your great mercy that you caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead by grace alone. So Lord, lift our hearts and lift our spirits and help us that as we read Holy Scripture, We see what you're doing, and it really strengthens us and helps us to grow roots deeper downward that we may bear fruit upward. In Jesus' name, amen.